Good morning. Well, good morning to those here in the room and to those watching in Traditions Online. And Ording Valley's with us this morning, so glad that, that you're uh, watching and that I get to preach to you and you get a break from Pastor Darren. So, um, no, just kidding. Pastor Darren's awesome. And we need to have him up at this campus again before too long. But I'm excited to jump into Galatians chapter 2. I want to remind you of a theme that we're focusing on in the letter to the Galatians that I hope will print something on your heart. And anytime we read the word, it should leave an impression. It should leave a lasting impression. One of the reasons we read the word over and over again is because there's a lot there, and the Holy Spirit always brings to life new elements and and pieces and themes or certain verses that are speaking to a situation that we're in. And when we read the word, we give Jesus a chance to speak unquestionably and clearly right to our hearts. But one of the things that corporately I want us to, to hear and to remember out of the letter to the Galatians is one of the major themes of that book, and that's this, that the good news of Jesus is the answer to our broken world. And I want you to hear that, uh, and, and maybe you're sitting here this morning, you're like, that is, a, that is a great theological statement, which it is. But theology is not great unless it can be applied practically in our lives, And I have a feeling that the brokenness of the world, that whether you're experiencing any brokenness in a personal way today, at some point in life, you will. You will either feel incredibly convicted and and moved by the brokenness outside of you in the community or the world around you and feel a need to do something about it, which is really good. Or you will be convicted and compelled by the brokenness inside of you to do something about it which is really good. But in either case, if it's going to have a long-term lasting answer, if you are going to be a part of real solutions and answers in the world, it has to be rooted in the good news of Jesus. Because only the good news of Jesus has an answer for our past, our present, and our future. Only the good news of Jesus has an answer for every human being that has ever lived, every human being who will ever live, regardless of race or culture or generation or background, regardless of their behavioral success or failure. The good news of Jesus is the answer and has the answer for every human being. And so, when brokenness comes knocking on your door or shows up, on the screen of your phone, or however it appears in your life, I want you to think, the good news is the answer to this problem. The question then that you should be asking is, how does the good news answer this problem? And that's where the Holy Spirit is meant to walk side by side with you and me and every other person in humanity and help us figure out how we partner with him to live out the good news practically as the solutions to the brokenness in the world around us. And so there's this journey. We can't just just slap a good news sticker on everything and just say, hey, Jesus lived, died, rose from the dead. You're fixed. No, that buys us the opportunity to live in a relational, creative adventure with the Holy Spirit to bring life and bring healing to a dying world. And that's what Jesus wants. He wants the journey. He doesn't want a fan club. He wants a family. He wants us to walk with him through life and to learn how his power and his love actually do 
come to bear on all of our lives in very personal ways. And that's what we see in one sense in the gospel, in the letter to the Galatians, but it's the theme that is meant to be applied to every part of our lives. And so if you're sitting here today and there is brokenness in your life, there's brokenness in your family, there's brokenness inside of you, the question that you get to, you get to unwrap with the Holy Spirit's help is how does what Jesus did for me bring healing and wholeness to me and the people around me in the world? And he can't wait to help you answer that question. And that's what we're watching the Apostle Paul kind of unwrap for the Galatians in the letter to the Galatians. It's what God is using the letter to the Galatians to speak to his church generation after generation. And you'll remember in the previous chapter, we saw the Apostle Paul demonstrate godly authority by going and seeking accountability and correction from the other apostles. Some of you, you, you were here for that or you watched online for that, but Essentially, Paul, who was kind of like, he's like one of the church head honchos. I mean, you couldn't really argue with Paul. Paul's like, I'm an apostle. Jesus came and knocked me off a horse, so therefore I get to say whatever I want in the scripture. It didn't quite work that way. But it seemed like he was so in tune with Jesus that everything Paul said and did was a lot like Jesus. But even Paul reminded himself that he was not Jesus and he needed accountability. So he went and visited Peter. He went and visited the other apostles and said, hey, here's how I'm doing ministry. I'm ministering to the Gentiles, the non-Jews. You guys are ministering to the Jews. Am I checking out here? Am I checking all the boxes? Is this real Jesus stuff or is this just like a Paul version of Jesus stuff? We always want to do Jesus stuff, not our own version of Jesus stuff, right? And so Paul checked in, and Peter and the other apostles, they, they had some questions, some interviews, some all that, all that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, they said, Paul, you're doing awesome. You're doing awesome, and God has called you to this specific group of people. He's called you to the Gentiles, called us to the Jews, so that we can both help apply the gospel, the good news of Jesus, in these different cultural contexts. So Paul, go, do your thing. That's really exciting. But in the second part of Galatians chapter 2, we see now Peter go to Paul. Peter now goes to Paul to see what Paul's doing, what Paul's ministry looks like to the Gentiles, and we'll find that accountability goes both ways, doesn't it? And this time, it's not quite as easy and friendly as it was the last time. And so let's open up and kind of read the, the story here. And if you have a, an aversion to conflict, I just want you to, I want to warn you, you might want to just kind of prep yourself, like there is conflict in this passage. So just take some deep breaths. We're going to get through it. We're going to get through it together. But Galatians chapter 2, verse 11 reads this way, when Peter came to Antioch, kind of the headquarters for the, the Gentile church, I had to oppose him to his face, for what he did was very wrong. When he first arrived, he ate with the Gentile believers who were not circumcised. But afterward, when some friends of James came, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. He was afraid of criticism from these people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. As a result, other Jewish believers followed Peter's hypocrisy, and even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. When I saw that they were not following the truth of the gospel message, I said to Peter in front of all the others, since you, a Jew by birth, have discarded the Jewish laws and are living like a Gentile, why are you now trying to make these Gentiles follow the Jewish laws? traditions. 
Let's just stop right there. Have you ever been called out in public? Peter was experiencing that. Don't you feel a little bit bad for Peter right now? And Peter was simply doing something that every human being does. Peter was simply catering his behavior to what felt most socially acceptable in the moment. There was a problem, though, because Peter was one of the great leaders of the church. And what Peter did, other people did. People follow your example. When you say, I'm a Christian, when you say, I go to church, when you say, I believe the Bible, when you say, I believe in Jesus, your example matters. And the more that God uses you in leadership, there's great blessing and reward in that, but there's also great accountability in that. And Paul recognizes that if Peter is going to sin publicly, Peter needs to be corrected publicly. That's a biblical principle, that leaders often are corrected publicly because they led people astray publicly. Peter's so influential that even Barnabas, another uh, high-ranking leader in the church at that time, was led astray by Peter's example. And what did Peter do? He ate lunch at the popular table. He, he decided, once these other guys showed up, I better go eat with the varsity team. I don't want to get caught hanging out with the JVers. Peter made a simple social decision. He decided, in this moment, I have to choose which group I want to belong with. And what did Peter do? He went to the one that seemed like they had it a little bit more together. He went to the one that was a little more comfortable for him culturally. And what his actions were saying were louder than what his words had said. His words said what the good news says. And the good news is that we are not validated by our own performance, but by Jesus' life and death for us. The good news is that Jew or Gentile, you're not validated by your own social or religious behaviors, but by Jesus' love for you expressed in his life and death for you. And your behavior is secondary to your beliefs. Peter had preached this message, Peter had lived this message, but for whatever reason, Peter had a weak moment in Antioch, he felt a little insecure, and he bent to the social expectations around him. And the sad thing is, the Gentiles weren't surprised by it. They were used to Jews ostracizing them. And the Jews weren't surprised by it. They had lived a life of being trained to separate themselves from non-Jewish believers as a way of demonstrating their faithfulness to a holy God. No one was surprised by it, but Peter knew better. And Paul watched this happening. In fact, Paul was probably excited that Peter was coming. He's like, oh man, Peter being here is going to validate the Gentile church. Peter, the leader of the Jewish church, is really, this is going to bring great unity in the church. And instead it was bringing division because Peter's, Peter's behavior was not lining up with the beliefs that he preached. And don't we all do this from time to time? If we're not careful, don't we all do what feels a little safer to us? I mean, it says right here, this is crazy to me because if you've read the good news, if you've read the gospels about Peter, you know Peter was kind of a bull in a china shop. Peter wasn't like your little wallflower, like pushover kind of guy. Peter was the kind of guy who went in and told you what was up. He told you what he thought. He even tried to tell Jesus what was up and only Jesus could set him straight. I think that's why Jesus loved him so much. He's like, you're just such a big knucklehead. Nobody's gonna help you except me. Anybody else a knucklehead like only Jesus could get through to you? <laughs> Don't point at your spouses right now, okay? <laughs> but Peter was that kind of a guy, and yet in this moment, what does it say? It says, P 
Peter was afraid of criticism. Isn't it interesting? It depends on the situation, but all of us, any healthy human being who values and is aware of other people has the temptation of being afraid of criticism. We're tempted to to be afraid of what other people think about us. And the Bible tells us that that actually is is sin, that comparison, that, that, uh, that worry, that fear, that insecurity, which we all struggle with as broken people in a broken world and in cultures that are often ruled by who's popular and who's acceptable and social norms and all those things. We are trained in all of our cultures, every culture, to fear standing out for the wrong reasons. And we are trained to pursue standing out for the right reasons, whatever that given culture decides is the right reason. And really, there's some of that that is God-given. But we're only supposed to worry about what God thinks, and we're only supposed to try to live up to the culture of the kingdom. Peter slipped into fear, and what happens when we, when we kind of slip into social fear, what do we quickly do? We quickly behave not according to whatever we truly believe, but whatever we think everyone around us believes. Right? I mean, what do they tell you in school? Don't say what you think is right. Say what the teacher thinks is right. Right? We train people that way. And then we go into social context. Don't say what you want. Say what you think other people want you to say. If you want to be accepted, fit in. Go with the flow all of those kinds of things. And what happened with Peter is Peter was literally taking action that was in opposition to the gospel he preached. And Paul says, you're a hypocrite. You're a hypocrite. And frankly, as people that believe a high standard in a broken world, all of us should be quick to say, like every now and then I slip into a little bit of hypocrisy. Peter didn't get excommunicated from heaven because of this moment, by the way. Peter's still one of the greatest Christians that ever lived, but he had a moment as a broken person in a broken world. And Paul lovingly, forcefully called him out on it. And that hypocrisy means that we live a lie. Paul even says, he says, instead of of living according to the truth, they were living a lie. They were not following the truth of the gospel message, they were following a lie. And whenever we start worrying too much about what everyone else thinks, we start living a lie. We start living, we start pretending, we start putting up the facade. Now, before I, before I, I just get you all fired up to just rebel against any social expectation ever, there are some healthy ones. There are some healthy things, right? Like, you know, it's, it's healthy for us to, to dress and speak in ways that are respectable of other people. Right? Like there's some things that are like, there, there's some, some spectrum there, there's some grace to go different directions, but there's, there's some healthy social norms to communicate and to present ourselves in ways that are helpful and relational with other people. To be self-aware and other-aware is a good thing, but to be self-insecure and others-afraid is where that steps into an unhealthy, an unhealthy trend that leads to insecurity, it leads to hypocrisy, it leads to fear and anxiety and all of those other things that we have all struggled with since at least we went through puberty. It's interesting that the whole battle here was over circumcision, also a decision that happened at puberty, right? And so we need to remember the good news says that we're not validated by our own performance, we are validated 
by the life and death of Jesus. We have to remember that instead of us meeting God's expectations, God came and met his expectations on our behalf by Jesus' life. Jesus lived as a substitute human being for us. He says, man, they are like, they are like O for several billion at this point. Nobody is meeting the, the standard. I'm going to go and live amidst their brokenness and resist the brokenness and live not to show off, but live on their behalf. And so Jesus lived as a substitute for us, but then Jesus died as a substitute for us because our failure to live up to the appropriate standards to relate with God. Because if there's one social standard we should try to live up to, it's to hang out with Jesus. And if there's one social standard we consistently fail at, on our own, it's to live, live up to Jesus' standard. And so Jesus, that, that sin, that selfishness that separates us from relationship with God required a price to be paid, and the only appropriate price is death. And so not only did Jesus live as a substitute for us, he also died as a substitute for us. He said, the standard that I'm holding them to, I will fulfill on their behalf. Isn't that pretty amazing? It's like the teacher giving you a, a, your entire grade rests on one exam, and they know you can't possibly pass it on your own. So the day they give you the exam, they sit down, and they take the test too, and at the end, they write your name on their test and their name on your test. And it looks like they failed, and you passed with flying colors. That's what Jesus did for us. And we have to remember that that is what qualifies us. When you go to work tomorrow, you need to remember you're qualified by Jesus first and foremost, regardless of what other people think or say about you. You need to remember that Jesus is the one who loves you. You don't need the acceptance and the love of other people who constantly dangle it in front of you but never let you have it. We need to rest in the goodness of God. And Paul kind of re-explains this in this confrontation with Peter, reading on in verses 15 through 19. He says to, to Peter, you and I are Jews by birth, not sinners like the Gentiles. That was the cultural understanding there. Yet we know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ not by obeying the law. And we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we might be made right with God because of our faith in Christ, not because we have obeyed the law. For no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. But suppose we seek to be made right with God through faith in Christ and then we are found guilty because we've abandoned the law. Would that mean Christ has led us into sin? Absolutely not. Rather, I'm a sinner if I rebuild the old system of the law, I already tore down. For when I tried to keep the law, catch this, when I tried to keep the law, it condemned me. So I died to the law. I stopped trying to meet all of its requirements so that I might live for God. Have you ever been in a season of life where you realized you were just chasing a set of expectations and you could never quite live up to them. I mean, maybe you remember as a kid always trying to keep your parents happy and they were never happy with you. Maybe you've had a boss. We probably all had a boss at some point in our life where we could never quite live up to our boss's expectations. Maybe you have friends or other family or the other settings, but we tend to live in those, those situations from time to time where we want to meet someone's expectations, but it seems like our best efforts can't. There's one thing worse than that, though. When we set our own expectations of what life should be like and we can't ever reach that, 
You ever have those moments where you're like, you're working so hard, you're chasing some ideal in your head about life, and you're constantly frustrated that you are not reaching that ideal? That is the human experience with behavioral standards. And the law that, that, that Paul is speaking about here is not just any law, it's the Jewish law, it's the Old Testament law. The law that he was communicating about was a God-given standard. It was a good standard. God saw human beings chasing all these different standards of living. He said, well, if you want a standard of living to chase, here's a standard of living. If you can live up to this standard, then sure, you'll, you'll end up right with me. But God knew that we would never live up to that standard. In fact, in Romans, we read about the fact that the, the law itself was to help us realize that we didn't just need behaviors to justify ourselves. We actually needed God. We couldn't do life on our own. And the problem with behavioral standards, the problem with social standards, and the problem with our own expectations is that we build in our heads a structure that if we can live up to this, then I will be good enough, then life will be good enough, then I will be happy. And we never reach that standard. And so what happens is so many people come to the conclusion that they are doomed to unhappiness. And that's not the point of God's law. The point of God's law is to say, you're not gonna get there on your own, so can I submit to you, humanity, that you might need the God that created you, and that the God that created you is willing to set right all of your wrongs and lead you into the life you are meant to have. And that's what the Apostle Paul is reminding Peter of. He says, we know better than this. We know that this whole like Jews versus Gentiles thing is not the point of the gospel. We know that we couldn't live up to the law. Why are we trying to hold them accountable to living up to the law? We've already discarded the law. Why are we playing this game again, Peter? And he says, I remember I could not do it, so I died to that set of expectations. I died to that set of standards, and do you know what I pursued? I pursued life in God instead. And chasing a standard of living always leaves us short of flourishing. We need to hear that in a culture that constantly presents to us a, a carrot on the end of a stick that says, hey, here's a better standard of living. Here's what you need to be happy. This is what you have to have to be happy. Young people in the room, our culture is sick and twisted and will always tell you, here's what you need to be happy. Come and get it. Come and get it and sacrifice everything to get there. Sacrifice your relationships, your health, your well-being, your morals, your values. Come and be happy. And I would challenge you, look around you and see how many people actually are. Because the results of our everybody-can-be-happy culture is more anxiety, more depression, more suicide. And I don't make light of those things. Those are diseases of the soul that we need healing from. But they are the results of our own obsession with pursuing happiness apart from God. Culturally and sometimes individually, we reap the, the results of that pursuit and chasing those standards of living. Even a religious standard of living will leave us unhappy. You know, I was talking to uh, Paul Aiken this morning, who's one of our leaders, one of our ushers in the church. Some of you know Paul. And he was telling me, he, he, we were talking about some different things. I was talking about when I was a youth pastor. I hesitate to share this in public. But when I was a youth pastor, when I got, got hired into my first pastoral ministry job, I had earrings. 
and I got hired in a church where I had to wear a suit and tie every Sunday. I never had a suit and tie, so I had to buy one with my first paycheck. And so I remember showing up in a suit and tie, and the, the pastor that had hired me, he told me the week after, he, he called me in his office, he said, hey, I had somebody come up to me and say to me, uh, hey, I remember when I kicked my son out of my house for getting his ears pierced, and now we have a pastor with earrings. I thought, well, this job didn't last very long. <laughs> and you know what that lead pastor said? He said, aren't we thankful for the grace of Jesus? And I ended up being there another eight years. So it was just, it was all good. But I, that was, to me, and I'd only been a Christian for a couple of years, but I realized in that moment there, there were some people that associated their faith with behavioral standards that were stealing their joy. Because of that picture of what those, those earrings meant, because of that, that person couldn't hear anything I had to say without seeing it through a filter of that. that there's something wrong there, Right? And we missed on the grace of the gospel. And Paul, he said back to me, he's like, oh yeah, well I remember when I came to Christ, I had a deck of Uno cards and someone told me if I kept playing Uno, I was going to hell. It's like, well you got me beat there, Paul. So next time you play Uno, just make sure you're right with Jesus, okay? It's funny though now, but horrible the things we put on people. And the only people that we're sometimes harder on are ourselves. And so we need to remember that apart from the grace of God, we can never, ever achieve the standard we were created for. The reason we do those things is because we were created for greatness. We were created to be like God in many ways. We were created for glory. We were created for blessing. We were created for flourishing. We just have this, this obsession with trying to do it on our own apart from God. And as long as we try to do it apart from God by our own religious rules or by abandoning all order altogether, anything apart from God will fail. But when we come to Jesus... It changes everything. And that's what Paul says in verse 20, which, by the way, might be the central verse of the entire letter to the Galatians. I would encourage you to write this verse down, to memorize this verse, to remind yourself of this verse. Those of you that, that own businesses, remind yourself this is how you should lead your business. Those of you that go to jobs that you're not sure you want to go to, remind yourself of this verse on the way to work every morning. Think about this when you're changing your kid's dirty diaper. Remember this verse because you want to pray this verse over yourself and over other people. This is what life is actually all about. This is what the gospel should play out as in our lives. Verse 20, Paul says, My old self has been crucified with Christ, brutally murdered with Christ, sacrificed with Christ, tortured with Christ, shamed and gotten rid of with Christ, that when Christ went on the cross, we have the option of putting all of the ugliness of our past on that, but we have to participate in it. We have to recognize it needed to be crucified. Jesus went to the cross for our ugliness, but we get to submit it to him or not. My old self has been crucified with Christ, so it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body. How? By trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Somebody you can trust. Paul wants 
Peter to remember, and he wants Peter to demonstrate to Jews and Gentiles alike, and God wants us to remember today that only relationship with God can make everything else in your life meaningful. Do you want to make your career meaningful? Make your career meaningful by walking through it with Jesus every day. Do you want to make your your challenging family relationships meaningful? Walk through them with Jesus every day. Do you want to make your victorious moments meaningful? Invite Jesus into your celebration and celebrate the goodness of God that has given you goodness in this world, a broken world. Right? Only relationship with God can make everything else meaningful, and only the cross of Jesus, only crucifixion restores relationship with God. Only brutal death erases the ugliness of our selfishness. We have a really hard time buying into that, but from God's perspective, the selfishness of what we do to each other, of how we abandon God, and how we think about ourselves is worse than anything that happened on the cross. It's uglier than what was done to Jesus on the cross. And Jesus went to the cross to erase it, but we have to participate. We can't say, because Jesus went to the cross, all of my ugliness actually is good stuff now. I can just continue on it. No, we recognize the results of sin is horrific death. And we want that sin to die with Jesus when he died for our sin. On the cross, Jesus offered the life he had lived for us. On the cross, Jesus offered his life as a substitute to receive the punishment for our sins. Perfect life for imperfect life. He received separation from God in that moment, he received all of the darkness and hellishness that comes with being apart from God. And by the way, all of the worst brokenness in this world is evidence of hell. Hell, at its best definition, is separation from God, and God is all good. So if you want to know what hell is, hell is separated from everything that is good in this world, and hell is inheriting everything that is bad in this world. That's a good way to think about hell. And Jesus took all of that experience on himself on the cross so that we don't have to. And we receive it. We receive that offer. We receive the reward for his perfection when we do the same and offer our lives back to him. So Paul says, I no longer live, but Jesus lives in me. Paul's clearly alive, and Paul was going to live for eternity. Paul is alive even now because of the cross. But what Paul means is, I am alive, but I don't have a right to be alive. Jesus is going to drive this car better than I will. So I no longer live my life every day as Jesus. How do you want to live through me? How do you want to live this out? Jesus, if you were me, how do you want me to do this life? And because of the Holy Spirit, Jesus is right there with us in that moment, partnering with us as we were created to have him partner with us. And so the cross is a place of exchange. Jesus surrendered himself for us, and he invites us to surrender ourselves to him. And that's the ultimate step of faith. Belief Faith, these things that sound trivial, we say if we believe in Jesus, we, we don't have to go to hell, we get to go to heaven. Do you know what belief means? Belief is trust. Belief is surrender. Belief is that trust fall that says, I know you're going to catch me. I'm not going to do it. 
I know Sam would give me his best shot, but he'd probably get too much of my best shot. He'd be splattered on the floor. But our ultimate step of faith is complete and total surrender to Jesus. Confessing our sin, receiving his righteousness, walking in his power. And what does that look like practically? What does that look like all the time? It looks like what Paul says. He says, I do this by trusting in the Son of God. You don't surrender to something you don't trust. You surrender when you trust. And how do we know that Jesus is trustworthy? He loves us. He laid his life down for us. You can trust somebody like that. Jesus loves you. He laid his life down for you. But do you live like you trust him? I found there's kind of two directions that trust goes. We trust when things are going wrong and we trust when things are going right. We trust when things are going wrong. We trust in the face of our fears and our failures by not giving up, by not believing what our failure says about us, but believing what God says about us. When we are facing failure, when you are afraid that you are not enough, when you are afraid that life is too difficult, when you are afraid that there is no victory in store for you, when you are afraid that you are not lovable, that you are not going to accomplish anything. Do you know what you need to trust? God's word. You need to read the word. You need to quote the word over yourself. You need to believe the word. You need to write it on you. You need to tattoo it on you if you're going to remember it that way. You know, somebody else is like, I can't listen anymore. Earrings and tattoos. (laughs) That wasn't in the notes. Sorry. But you need to get the word of God. When oh, failure brings, makes us vulnerable to the lies of the devil, and he says, there's no point in your life. You are a loser. There's nothing good in you to offer the world. Nobody's ever going to love you. You're never going to accomplish anything. You're the worst mom, the worst dad, the worst employee, the worst person. And what, where does that lead us? Depression, discouragement, abandoning everyone else in our life because they're better off without us. By the way, self-pity is proof that you are believing the devil. I want you to, to, some of you need to hear that. Self-pity, self-victimization. If other people make you a victim, that's Jesus' problem, but you make yourself a victim, that's your fault. Self-pity is proof that you're listening to the devil and proclaiming it. Don't live that way. The word of God says there is victory in the midst of your failure. The word of God says he can work all things for the good of those who love him. The word of God says you will be loved no matter what. And the word of God says there is purpose in your life now and in eternity. The word of God says that you will sow seeds and they will bear fruit. The word of God says that you can't not reap good things in your life if you are trusting Jesus. So when the world says, you're a single parent, your kids are going to end up screwed up, say, no, Jesus is the other parent. He can make a difference. When you feel like, man, my skill set doesn't fit anywhere, no, Jesus gave you that skill set. He wants to use it for his glory and for the good of creation. You need to believe what the word of God says about you. And that's how you trust Jesus every day. That's how you surrender. You say, Jesus, I feel this way, but I surrender it because you said it's different. And I trust you more than I trust myself. But there's another area that we have to trust. There's another area we have to trust. We have to trust Jesus with our ambitions and our desires. Because many of us, if we've lived for a while, we we relate to both sides of this, but sometimes we get caught in that side where all the, the fear and failure dictate our lives. But if we've been away from fear or failure long enough, pride and selfishness want to take over. 
We move from I can't do anything, nothing good will ever happen. We move to I should have everything, everything good is owed to me. And I get everything good. I will do whatever I need to get everything good. And we move from from self-pity to entitlement. We move to pride and ambition. And then we have to recognize that desire and ambition can be used of God, but they have to stay surrendered to God. And trusting God with our desires and ambitions says, God, I really want this, but I don't know if it's the right time or the right place, so I'm going to give this to you. I'm going to give this opportunity to you. I'm going to give this gift to you. I'm going to give my wealth to you. I'm gonna... And how do you do that? First and foremost, in prayer. That before when you see the bright, shiny object that you've always wanted, before you grab it, you say, Jesus, that's your bright, shiny object. Are you wanting to give me that? Jesus, I want that really, really bad. But if you say no, I'm going to trust you. And sometimes Jesus says, I'm going to give it to you for a little while, and then I'm going to ask you to give it to somebody else. We trust Jesus. We surrender to Jesus by not saying, I want it so I get it, but saying, I want it, Jesus, do I get it? Or Jesus, I I love this, and you've given this to me as a blessing. Are you wanting me to use this to bless someone else? When we live that way, can I tell you, there's no fear of loss anymore. There's no like, oh, I lose this one thing, right? The picture of Gollum in Lord of the Rings. Like, I have to have this one thing. I'm not going to do a Gollum impression, okay? <laughs> that's, that's Pastor Darren's job at Ording. But here's the thing. We, we live like that. I have to have this or my life is worth nothing. I have to have that promotion. I have to be looked at this way. I have to accomplish this. I have to achieve that. I have to own this. This person needs to love me the way I want to be loved. My children better treat me the way I want to be treated. And we turn things that are blessings into idols. And we need to trust Jesus and say, Jesus, I want that, but you're enough for me. I want that, but you're enough for me. You know, Jeanette and I are learning this discipline in our lives there was a lot of years where we were on the other side where we were like, Jesus, we're so desperate. If you don't come through, we are in big trouble. You ever lived through the, one of those seasons? If you haven't, you will. It's part of human existence. You know, in the recent seasons of our life, we're more like, Jesus, you've blessed us with more than we ever imagined. What do you want us to do with your blessing? But do you know what my fear, my greatest fear is? Is letting that blessing go to my head is thinking that blessing is for me and because of me. That is a scary place to be. And Jesus says, trust me. Will you trust me? Here's this crazy thing about trust. At first, trust feels very scary. Trust is frightening at first. But as you continue in trust, as trust is proven over and over again, as you trust what Jesus has done for you, you know, trust no longer looks like stress of like, is this gonna work out okay? Trust looks like rest. Trust looks like rest. Trust means you don't have to keep chasing your expectations or someone else's. Trust means you don't have to keep trying to prove something because Jesus has already proven it for you. Trust means you can rest in the arms of a heavenly father who loves you and has provided for you for, for eternity but for every day. Resting And Jesus' love and leadership in chaotic times is actually the key to flourishing in a broken world. Not freaking out because Jesus is bigger than the problems. 
is a key to flourishing, right? That we rest, that in the moment of chaos, we say, Jesus, I don't know what's going on right now, but I know that you do. I know that you do. I got in a little car accident last week, and it was my fault. This is my confession moment. The reason I'm sharing this embarrassing confession moment, though, is because in that moment, I remember I was sitting on the side of the road in a broken car waiting for the tow truck driver. Just a very vulnerable. You're like, ugh, I do not like that I'm not in control of the situation. And I remember sitting uh, in that moment in the car, and, you know, the, the tow truck driver says, I'll be there in 20 minutes, <laughs> which means like three hours. And uh, I remember sitting in the car and just being reminded, like, Lord, you're in control. And even though my day feels like it's ruined, you deserve a little bit of glory. You deserve glory that I'm not injured. Nobody was injured in the accident. You deserve glory that, you know, and I, I just started to find things to praise him for. Now, I don't always have those moments. There's other moments where I'm just like, ah! But in that moment, the Holy Spirit got my attention, and I began to just give Jesus glory. And you know what? The day worked out great. The day worked out great. Now, the car is still in the shop, but I'm believing that the Lord has that under control. Instead of me being a control freak with my insurance company and the, the auto body shop and all those things, the thing that I want to do is like take control, kick butt, take names, and make sure that I get what I deserve. And instead, I'm like, Jesus, I don't have energy to worry about that. Can you worry about that for me? I've got more kingdom-oriented things to worry about. And Jesus has provided in miraculous ways already. Jesus has been so generous to me. Jesus has been so caring to me in the process. But the surrender has allowed me to rest in what otherwise would have been a very stressful situation. And I want to challenge you when you're in stressful moments this next week, lean into trust so that you can rest in the fact that Jesus has it under control. And as we do that, there's really only one thing that we have to look out for, and it's this final verse. I want to close with this. Paul says this. He says, I do not treat the grace of God as meaningless. In that moment, Peter was treating the grace of God as meaningless. I do not treat the grace of God as meaningless, for if keeping the law could make us right with God, then there was no need for Christ to die. Here's the thing. Jesus did die. Jesus died because we needed grace. Jesus died because either we would die on our own or we had no other option. Jesus did die. And when we come to acknowledge the reward of the cross, there is a tendency that we have to fight to minimize that cross in our lives. Many of us in this room have had moments where the cross was incredibly powerful to us. Many of us have had moments that, that we know that Jesus did something, he changed something, he saved our souls, whatever the case might be. We know that Jesus did something in our lives that so often, like Peter did in this story, we get used to the cross and we think it did something in the past, but we go back to living like the past and the present. We don't live like the cross matters today. We don't live like Jesus died for us today. We don't live like Jesus rose from the dead for us today. We stop living like what Jesus did is for today. And we either live like it, well, when I came to know Jesus, I stopped feeling so guilty about my past. Well, when I came to know Jesus, I'm confident about my eternity. And Paul is saying, don't make the cross meaningless today. 
Don't walk out of this room today and make it meaningless. Don't walk into work tomorrow and the cross has no meaning for you. Don't live any moment of your life as if the cross has no meaning for that moment because the cross gives meaning to every moment. Because Jesus died to redeem your life, every moment matters. Every moment is an opportunity for intimacy with the most incredible person who ever existed. Every moment is an opportunity to hear the voice of God that breathes life into our souls. Every moment is an opportunity for God to use us in ways beyond what we are capable of on our own. Do not make the cross meaningless. We make the cross meaningless by either thinking that it accomplished nothing for us by saying, today's ruined. This relationship's ruined. My career is a waste. We make the cross meaningless when we live without hope. When we think the cross did nothing for us, we also make the cross meaningless when we think we never needed it. When we start thinking, I'm pretty darn good on my own. I've got this under control. We make the cross meaningless. And when we make the cross meaningless, we negate its benefits in our lives. We begin to live by the same standards of the world. The New Testament again and again reminds people that if you're not living according to the grace and power of Jesus, that you're playing by the world's standards. You're dealing with brokenness with brokenness rather than dealing with brokenness with love and power. And so we need to remember every day, Jesus died for your day today. Jesus died for you for today. And you remember what Paul said? He said, he loves you, he laid his life down for you. And so the question for all of us this morning is what are you chasing today? What are you chasing that instead you should be trusting Jesus with? Are you chasing a standard of living? Are you chasing a relationship? Are you chasing a promotion? Are you chasing something that you think, when this happens, I will be happy? Are you chasing an acceptance by somebody else? Are you chasing when somebody else comes to the Lord, then I can be happy? What are you chasing? A lot of it's probably good things. But Jesus is saying, will you trust me with those things? Because of the cross, you can trust him. And because of the resurrection, you can know that he's going to bring good out of it. Whatever you're chasing, can we lay it down at the cross this morning? Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you this morning and we just confess that like Peter, we get caught up sometimes. Like Peter, we need Paul's words to remind us, and they're really your words. Like Peter, we get caught up in our own expectations and the expectations of others. We got caught up in our own fears and ambitions. We get caught up in social things and career things. We get caught up in all these other things. And Father, we want to come back to the cross. We want to come back to crucifying the old life and living the new life. We want to come back to flourishing. We want to come back to surrender and rest. And so Father, would you just Pour out your spirit afresh and anew in us today and lead us to apply your good news to our lives today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.